Welcome to Nature's Touch. Climate change is here. I'm your host, Robert Lundahl, filmmaker and journalist. Larry Merculiev is an Unangan elder, teacher, and kuyak, which means messenger from ancient times and the extended arm of the people. He is originally from St. Paul Island in the Bering Sea. Larry has more than 40 years experience serving his community, the Unangan, Aleut of the Pribilof Islands and other indigenous peoples locally, nationally, and internationally. Larion was the first native commissioner of the Alaska Department of Commerce and Economic Development, a state cabinet post. He also served as chair of the Indigenous Knowledge Sessions of the Global Summit of Indigenous Peoples on Climate Change in 2009, and was the chair of the Scientific Committee for Snow Change in 2005, a consortium of indigenous leaders from eight Arctic countries focused on climate change. This is part two of our conversation, which may be heard on climatechangeishere.com. So, you know, the federal government made this move. They established this policy by executive order to offer some lip service to protecting the Bering Sea. And I asked you if you, if the tribal villages were involved, if there was a process and you said, no, we don't have money. We're not funded to pull it together. Yeah, it's not that we don't want to. We want to. Can you imagine uh, um, the State of the Bering Sea report done by native people around the entire Bering Sea that's published, let's say, every two years? That, that would change the way, uh, number one, that people hear or not hear native ways of knowing. And number two, change the way that we manage things because the management uh, that is being done now is, um, I mean, for example, we view the science as um, taking apart pieces of creation and studying it uh, in hopes that we can understand the whole. When the native people look at the whole and realize that it's greater than the sum of its parts and therefore studying one piece of it is not going to get you there and uh, scientists are now just beginning to to understand this uh, therefore there's developing ecosystem approaches but even that is um, um, the tip of the iceberg in terms of what needs to be done from the eyes of Native people. This is Robin Carnine of Namapa First Peoples Radio. Thanks for joining Robert Lindahl and myself for a campfire conversation on Nature's Touch. Worried about climate change and other environmental issues? So are we. Thanks for tuning in. We all can make a difference. You explained that you had been raised in an environment that required you to expand your consciousness, your visual field, uh, to come to grips with your role in this place. So how how do these teachings, uh, how could these teachings contribute to better management? Well, for example, 
just one example, which is a stretch for most scientists and researchers, is that uh, language is more special than most linguists give it. It contains a vibration. These are languages of people who've been in an area for thousands of years. Uh, that it contains a vibration that is comes from Mother Earth herself. And through that uh, interchange, uh, native peoples around the world are able to commune with Mother Earth. And, and so they hear Mother Earth and what she's saying uh, and what we need to do. And uh, this is something that um, cannot be documented in scientific terms, empirically, uh, but is so true. So uh, this is one of the things that when you go to your heart, um, then you, you will know what you need to do uh, personally with your life and uh, or with the world. And that uh, what you need to do, um, uh, one of the things that we know as Native people is that we um, have to be in alignment and in harmony with Mother Earth. And what that harmony means is way different than what Western society sees it. Um, and uh, most of the powers that be look at us as threats, that, that we don't want any development, for example. Um, but uh, nothing can be further from the truth that we do evolve and have very sophisticated uh, ecosystem approaches uh, from different parts of the world, it's, it's, it's different, uh, but uh, it's, it's something that is, um, um, that, that reflects the, the, what people get from being in an area. And so what we know in the Bering Sea, the scientists, um, bless their hearts, they're struggling with trying to understand what's happening in the Bering Sea, but um, they don't know the kinds of things that we know. For example, uh, our elders tell us that uh, the fur seals and the seabirds are like honeybees. They send out mess of scouts looking for food, and they come back and they signal it to their rookery. Uh, and that's something that scientists poo-pooed until we... Uh, got together with Russian scientists. Um, we, we went to the Shirshoff Institute of Oceanology and the, uh, the, the second in command uh, was Michael Flint who headed up a team of transdisciplinary scientists, not interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary. And so we thought, well, this is a group that we might be able to work with as native people. And so we asked them, and they said, yes, they'll be, they were chopping at the bit. And so we brought them out to the Pribilof Islands. And they worked with us where we, the Native people used Native science, and they used their science, uh, transdis transdisciplinary science, and we combined the two, and um, we, we put, put together a report that must have been at least a foot and a half thick over a four-year period. 
And um, uh, this report if it, it, it is published in every country except the U.S. Um, the U.S. Uh, at that time, the peer group review count, uh, uh, group said this is primitive science. That is, joint venturing with native people is primitive science. And so it is never, it's still not published in the U.S. today. Uh, but uh, one of the things that we, the, the elders, you know, when the elders said the, the birds and seals are like honeybees, I went to the scientists there and I said, uh, what would it take to uh, prove this? And they said, well, you know, um, we, we can't do that because it costs too much money. And so I went to the Russian scientists and asked them, uh, is there a way we can prove this? And they said, well, there's a way to show that this is probably true by uh, comparing least awkward colonies that are a quarter mile apart from each other because we know what the food sources are out to the continental shelf on the Pribilof Island. And, and so we said, you know, quarter mile apart, they, they, let's, let's see if they eat something uh, each different because the only food source for least awkward was a quarter mile from the island or 200 miles away. And, and what we uh, found out was that one colony foraged 200 miles away at the Continental Shelf. The other colony foraged a quarter mile away. And uh, that was evidence enough for us. So we took that to the National Marine Fisheries Service who manages fur seals and we said, well, here's what we got. They said, what would it take to do this with fur seal? And they said, well, maybe about $400,000 and, uh, and radio tag, we can get radio tagging and satellite telemetry data. Um, and so I went to Washington, D.C. and got uh, the uh, national director for, for the National Marine Fisheries Service to go to St. Paul for, for a weekend. And at the end of it, he said, okay, what do you need? And so we got the $400,000 and they, the scientists found out that the fur seals, which are located in different parts of the island in rookeries, go to different places to find food. And the birds did the same thing. Um, this is just one example of what we know uh, that the, the, Agencies don't, don't tap because they are on a mission budget, their mission for their department. They're going to find out about number of fur seals, let's say. Or in the case of Fish and Wildlife Service, let's find out uh, the number of birds that forage, that, that um, uh, lay eggs, and uh, uh, that kind of thing. That's all they did with just numbers. And when we took students from the high school there, three students, and we asked them to duplicate fish and wildlife service uh, methodologies to study seabirds. And we added the Unungan way of knowing. It says use Unungan way of knowing at the same time. And when they came up with their report at the end of the season, we showed that to the Fish and Wildlife Service Regional Director, and he came back to us two weeks later and said, this is the best graduate level report I've, I've ever seen. Who did this? And when we told him it was high school students, his jaw dropped. 
this is noteworthy is because it changed the way Fishing Wildlife Service studies seabird colonies all along coastal America. Just this, just, just the three kids. So, so where are we with the Bering Sea? Well, you know, they've been studying it for 30 years. We were, we, uh, Unungan people, Primloss, we flagged that there was an ecosystem-wide issue that was occurring in the Bering Sea starting in 1977. Uh, and um, we testified in numerous forums, uh, governmental forums, for 10 years saying this is what's happening, this is what's happening. But they considered our information uh, anecdotal. It may be useful, maybe not. We don't know, you know. And right, it's unproven. It's a yeah. story. And so it, our our information never hit the surface of government publications. But what we saw was that um, the nearshore foragers, the distance foragers, the the depth foragers, the surface foragers, uh, uh, birds and seals and sea lions were all um, having food problems. Because we noticed that uh, birds, uh, the adult birds, they had their breast bones sticking out, their chest muscles caved in, chicks were falling off of cliff ledges in, in larger numbers than ever in living memory. Uh, when we fleshed the, the pelt uh, uh, of the seal, we could see light through it. We never saw that before. Uh, all these kinds of things that, sh that told us that it was an ecosystem-wide phenomenon. And uh, the National Marine Fisheries Service and the Fish and Wildlife Service didn't um, conclude that um, until 10 years later. Um, and that we were right, and that um, that they would have shaved off hundreds of thousands of dollars, and um, um, and hundreds of hours of scientific time in forming their hypothesis, which was at that time high seas net entanglement was due to was the reason that fur seals were declining, but we knew differently. And had they listened to us in the very beginning, they would have shaved off 10 years from their, from their studies. Now, after 30 years of, of this kind of research, uh, they still can't say what's happening to the animals and birds that are declining. And they're declining massively. I mean, the Bering Sea is restructuring um, uh, in a way that that is very hard to recognize now um, we have you know sea lines are stellar sea lines are down by 80 percent um, fur seals are down uh, from a population of 1.2 million when i was there to about 475,000 today and still declining um, we have seabirds that are you know that are massively had they're down by 60 to 80 percent from 30 years ago and um, and still nothing's happening in the Bering Sea to change the way that we manage and we maintain that we need to change in a way that um, gives native people uh, an equal seat or 
they fund us so that we can develop our own capacity. In the meantime, we can interact with the scientists every six months or a year or so and say what worked, what didn't work, and why, and figure out what to do to solve the problems. We're making a little progress, but not anywhere near uh, what's required right now. And so one of the things that St. George, for example, has decided to do is that they are going to uh, be a voice for the animals and birds that are declining. And they want to establish a, a national marine sanctuary um, on St. George that goes out to the continental shelf. And um, um, because they feel like no one's speaking on behalf of the whole Bering Sea. They're speaking, yes, for their regions. And they all are concerned about what's happening in the other areas, but they, we don't have the capacity to interact with each other. Have you had any communications with uh, the new administration or the Fish and Wildlife Service recently or these organizations? Have you been given any indication yeah. of changes in policy or approach? Yeah. Yeah. Um, NOAA takes care of the National Marine Sanctuary programs. Uh, and um, we have a total of five years to get our, our program together for St. George. And we're in year four. We're now going into year five. And the Biden administration officials are uh, very enthusiastic about what we're proposing. But we have to deal with um, the, the negative aspects uh, that are being brought out by the industrialized fishing industry that says this plan will destroy fisheries, but nothing can be further from the truth. It, it, uh, it just calls for um, research uh, that will be, um, that, that's the way that uh, the North Pacific Fishery Management Council operates anyway, but that we would have special research in the Bering Sea uh, that is focused on uh, on these areas of why uh, the declines of these species are happening. We're on year four, going on year five. And uh, next year, uh, hopefully, we will be successful in getting this through, but it requires the approval of all the stakeholders in the Bering Sea. Uh, and that first will mean, of course, the, the native people, uh, of the Bering Sea, there are about 65,000 people. Uh, and the state of Alaska, the congressional delegation, the fishing industry, um, uh, these are people that we have to reach to help them understand what this kind of designation uh, doesn't threaten fisheries. But right now, uh, they are spreading rumors, some of them are, spreading rumors that this is an anti-fishing measure. That's a very simple way of looking at it. Yeah. Is complexity part of the problem that that's hard to communicate or if the experience isn't there? It's the way the Western system works, um, uh, which is unfortunate. Um, but hopefully we can get through that so that what we develop in the Bering Sea will revolutionize uh, management of the oceans worldwide.
Have you had contacts with other Arctic nations? Yes. Well, Russia. You mentioned Russia, but I'm thinking of you know Finland and Sweden and yeah, Greenland and, and Denmark. And we plan to bring up people that are already uh, members or already have a designation of a marine sanctuary in their area, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, to come to uh, Alaska to tell what they experience in terms of all of the things about managing uh, marine sanctuaries and its impact on fisheries. In all cases, um, they, uh, the fishery improved. Mm -hmm. I don't think that there's any case where the fishery did not improve. Do you notice changes in temperature? Is temperature part of the changing equation? Yeah, I'm not talking about the word climate change as we use it or the policy implications. I'm just talking about is it is the ocean warmer? Yeah, uh, there's no question that the uh, Bering Sea is 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius warmer than it was 30 years ago, and that's affecting everything, including everything inland of Alaska, uh, where, for example. We have salmon that are showing up with uh, parasites that are that are breeding in the in the Bering Sea, and it's warmer, so they're breeding faster, and they're feeding on salmon. And uh, we have so much. To, I mean, just one example of the salmon themselves. The elders feel like it, it's going to disappear, um, and this is a this is a big thing because Alaska is known for its wild salmon. And uh, not only are they showing up with parasites, the people are saying it's showing, they're showing up with lesions on them. And the reason for that is because the water levels in all the rivers, including the Yukon and Cusquam rivers, uh, are so low in some areas that the fish are rubbing against the rocks, getting lesions as a result. And so one year there was 40% of the salmon up the Yukon River were uh, showing up with lesions. Uh, then you've got uh, beaver dams showing up. Um, in, in, uh, I mean, beaver dams are showing up in every river body in Alaska now, even above the Arctic Circle. We're seeing beaver above the Arctic Circle. We've never seen that before. And, uh, and so when they create beaver dams, that further exacerbates the problem of lower water levels. Uh, and, you know, it just goes on and on. Is the range of the beaver expanding because of the temperature change or? Yes, there, uh, it's because of the temperature change and change of forage uh, where they're going further north for, for the food that they normally have in their area, but now has gone further north. The trees. Yeah, I've heard there's trees on the tundra now. Yep, there is. That they're, and, that they're rooting. And we're having tundra fires. Um, um, uh, you know, there's so many things. And what uh, people need to realize is that they interact with each other. When we have tundra fires and we have the, the, the salmon having problems and the, and the beaver going north, and you know, all of these things interact with each other. Uh, most of it in a negative way you know, under, in, in the climate crisis that we have.
Can you talk to me a little bit specifically about the Yukon River salmon and what your thoughts are, your experience? Well, you know, when I was up in one of the uh, Yukon River uh, villages, for example, um, a woman called over and said, here, I want you to take a look at this. And she has salmon hanging on her uh, wooden frames and she pulls on the meat or the flesh of the salmon and it falls off. Uh, this is something that has never happened before. And we know that that is due to uh, all these factors that I'm talking about that are affecting salmon. Uh, that's, uh, that's just one example. Another example, I was in Chalkitsik, um, and uh, the state of Alaska was going to cut down the take of moose uh, from the local people, and so they called together seven chiefs of the area. And the guy explained he was doing aerial transects to, to uh, do a ratio check on bull moose to female moose. And he took 45 minutes to discuss it. And then and the chiefs listened very, very uh, patiently. And, and uh, then the head chief said, did you notice that the water levels in, in the rivers are going down? He says, no, hydrology is not my department. And uh, he said, do you know that when water levels go down, the forests that moose eat disappear? And says, no, you know, that is somebody else's bailiwick. It's not my department. And he says, uh, then the chief continued on, well, um, do you know that there are more beaver dams in the area? And he says, no, you know, beavers are another department, another uh, agency that takes care of beaver. And, and so it, that's the way the conversation went. And then finally, this guy from the state says he genuinely wanted to do something positive. So he said, maybe you should talk to the board of game. And you could hear the silent moans of the, of the chiefs because they know that uh, the board of game uses best available science to make decisions on uh, these things and best available science de facto means not, not native ways of knowing. And so uh, they knew that this would be a useless thing. Uh, so it's, it's, um, it's really quite challenging. There's an official term for native ways of knowing, I think, right? Like an abbreviation like TKE, traditional knowledge and... Well, that's the Western way. Okay. We say traditional knowledge and wisdom. The elders are saying, this knowledge without wisdom is not only useless, but could be dangerous. And uh, that wisdom is not factored in in Western science. And so we developed warehouses full of information. We're the most knowledge-based society in the world, uh, in history. Uh, and look at what the results are. Without that wisdom, uh, uh, I'm afraid, you know, we're not going to do it on knowledge alone. It's, it's not logical. It's not rational. It comes from the heart. This is Robin Carneen of Namapa First Peoples Radio. Thanks for sitting by our campfire at Nature's Touch. 
Please join Robert Lindahl next time as he continues to share important conversations about climate change and other environmental issues. If you'd like to contact Robert, please email him at robert at studio-rla.com. Be kind to Mother Earth. It's the only one we have. This is part two of our conversation with Ilarion Merkuliev, which may be heard on climatechangeshere.com.